Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. Uh, we've been working our way from the 60s forward for quite some time. We've also done a lot of the flashback month stories set in pre-continuity, and today we are going to take an interesting journey into the world of What If, uh, as we delve into What If Minus One, uh, one of our last three flashback month issues to cover, and this is going to be a Bishop story. So we get to welcome both Bishop and Trevor Fitzroy and the uh, future world of Earth 1911 uh, into our podcast today. We'll talk about that in the latter half. First, I am thrilled to be joined by the all-star, just incredible cast of Zach Thompson, uh, Enid Balam, and Philip Seavey. Uh, all three of you are currently working in the X-Books in different capacities, and it is just such an honor. Now, Philip and I are good friends at this point, but it is a wonderful honor to meet both Zach and Balam. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. I'll have you use your gender pronouns. Let us know where we might know you from. And the question today, since we're in the what if world, if you look back on your past, can you think of a decision you've made that if you made another decision, your uh, life might be wildly different uh, in a very everything, everywhere, all at once <laughs> kind of a methodology? Uh, let's begin with Mr. Zach Thompson. Hi, Zach. Hello. Hi, um, Zach Thompson. He, him. I'm a writer from Canada that you uh, probably know from Cable. Uh, back in 2018, I wrote a five-issue arc on Cable with my often writing partner, Lonnie Nadler. Um, also, uh, Marvelous X-Men and the Age of X-Men event. And most recently, uh, a short stint on X-Men Unlimited with Philip, uh, where we did a Marrow and Feral story. Um, thinking about that what-if question, I, I often think about, um, I was uh, thinking about going to film school back in like 2010, and I had a choice between a film school in Vancouver and a film school in Montreal, and I chose to go to Vancouver, and that's actually where I met Lonnie and sort of began my career um, as, a, as a writer and everything, and I often think about what if I actually went to that other school in Montreal and what my life would have been um, if... I went down that path and it would be very different, I imagine. What if? <laughs> yes. Uh, do you live in Vancouver currently, Zach? No, I live in uh, Prince Edward Island, which is the smallest province in Canada, a uh, population of 150,000 people. So it's very wow. small town. -y I've talked about this on the show before, but right before COVID hit, I vacationed in Halifax. Uh, and when mm. Lenore Zan came on, we talked a lot about Nova Scotia, but I want to go to PEI so bad. I love I love that side of your country. It's beautiful. Yeah, the Maritimes are a wonderful and weird place. <laughs> uh, so good to meet you. And then let's go over to uh, Balam next. Hi. Yeah. Hello. How are you guys doing? Thank you for everyone who's listening out there. A pleasure to to be with you. Well, I'm a Mexican penciler for Marvel Comics. I've done work in the past for Humanoids, uh, which is a French-based uh, publisher, and also the Court, uh, working as a colorist and Titan Comics. My friends from London. I've done Blade Runner, and and for Marvel, I've done at least four series, four mini series, and only as a penciler, but but like the the lead artist for them. So yeah, it's been a it's been a wild ride. Regarding the question you made, um, my parents both were uh, professors uh, here in my country. So when they ended up their careers, when they when they um, 
finish their job. They, they were going to give me their tenure. I don't know if, if they're uh, in other countries that happen that you can inherit your tenure. But I, I wasn't feeling right with that, with that decision because I really, um, it, it wasn't fair for me. You know, there's a lot of people that try to, to gain those tenures and they, they study a lot and they travel a lot to make that effort and like being handed over like, like for, uh, uh, I, I don't know, it didn't, it didn't call my, my, my mind right. So I, I stepped uh, away from that uh, tenure, uh, which was middle school and, and junior, junior school. So I decided to become an artist, which um, I'm, I'm fairly um, early on that on that overview to have a sense if I did the, the right decision or, or I was wrong. I, I don't really know as of right now. I'm trying to enjoy the ride and, and live um, as happily as possible. So so yeah, that decision I believe it will it will be a sense of a, a change of, of paradigm, a change of life for me. Absolutely. It's so good to meet you. We recently talked about Blom on the show when uh, I interviewed Charlie Jane Anders, and we talked a lot about oh. New Mutants Lethal Legion uh, and the incredible work you're doing on that series. Uh, I'll talk to you more about that. Thank too. you. It's so great to meet you. Uh, and then Thank last you. but not least, my friend, from real life now, we met on this show, but we live near each other and have become friends at our kids' hangout. <laughs> it's so good to see you, Philip. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Um, yeah, I'm Philip C.V. He, him. I'm a comic book artist and writer, primarily as it relates to this podcast. I've done two storylines in X-Men Unlimited, which is the Marvel Unlimited Infinity Scroll comics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first one with Thorin Gronbeck, and then the second one was Zach Thompson. I just wrapped up a nine-issue arc on uh, Edge of Venomverse, another uh, Infinity comic on Marvel Unlimited, and I started with Clay, my, with Clay Chapman, who's been Clay on the Chapman. show. We love him too. Yep, and Jay Holtham, and hopefully, if you haven't had Jay on, you'll be able to have Jay on. He's currently doing the Bishop uh, War College miniseries right now. So I would love nice. to. Yeah, Jay is super cool. Yeah, the two of them wrote that series, kind of alternating uh, issues and stories. Uh, and then I just started my next one, which I don't. By the time this is out, I don't know if it'll be announced yet, but it's another digital comic, and it involves some mighty heroes. So yeah. <laughs> now, the same week this is released, uh, check out our Patreon. Philip and I just did a two and a half hour episode on the crazy mess of the Summers family. And it's pretty great. It's one of my favorite episodes we've ever put out on this show. Uh, Philip and I were texting the other day and he said he was telling his friends all about the chronology of the Summers family on a long drive. How did that go? <laughs> it, it went really well. Two of my friends were like really versed in X-Men comics. And uh, the, the third one was familiar but nowhere near as in the weeds as we were so it was real funny to just throw excessive names and continuities out into the air in hopes that he was able to follow along so you've met my husband he would not have enjoyed that conversation <laughs> no, it was not for him at all you had the the what if question oh, um, yes. i don't know if i have any as obvious an answer as as the two prior guests but so um, for a handful of years, when I was a kid, I was homeschooled. And when I was roughly 14 or 15, I wanted to go back to like public school. Uh, and that would have been high school age. Uh, and my parents actually wanted me to go to the local community or junior college, which is like the first two years of university. Uh, and it was kind of a back and forth fight on that. And I ended up deciding to go to college. So I started when I was about 15. Um, and it wasn't like, it's not like I was in like a, an engineering or medical program. I was just taking general courses uh, at a very easy school. Uh, but in the process of doing that, I took my first art class ever. It was right near like my favorite comic book store. So I would regularly go there. And that's when I became like 
an avid reader and really started, you know, putting together samples and portfolios and studying Wizard Magazine like the Bible. So maybe if I had gone back to high school or gone to high school, I guess you could say, instead of starting school, my trajectory would have been quite different as far as my exposure and education. And I can kind of do that fun trace sliding doors thing eventually to figure out what impact. But that was one that kind of stood out in my mind. Uh, I'm a therapist in my day job, and I will sometimes have conversations like this with my clients. And I'll reference the movie The Mighty Ducks. I don't know if you guys remember that old Disney movie. <laughs> at the end of that film, spoilers for a movie that's 30 years old, they hit the final goal in the hockey, and it like it like bounces off the goal and doesn't make it, and so they lose. And the kid's like, oh, man, if it had been a quarter inch this way, we would have won. And the guy says, but if it had gone a quarter inch the other way, then we wouldn't have even touched the goal and we would have lost completely. And uh, there's there's this idea of there's a better version and a worse version of our lives out there, which is one of the fun things about the what if books. Uh, if you get to read those books, uh, Marvel's doing a, a current line of those. And it's uh, obviously super famous through uh, the Disney Plus series that was out last year. Uh, lastly, I got I got ahead of myself. I'm Chad Anderson. I'm the host of this show. I don't need to recount my uh, my biography here, but I am a former Marvel Comics handbook writer. Uh, I currently work in therapy and production. I uh, I came out at the age of 32 after getting married and having kids. So there's a version of my life where I came out at like 15 and I have a very different trajectory, but my children never existed. But there's also a version of my life where I never came out and I have like nine children because that's what mormons do i used to be mormon <laughs> so oh, <right. laughs> i don't want either of those worlds i'm very happy with the one that i have but it's a, it's an interesting thing when you consider those uh big decisions uh yeah. so i want to start let's uh let's begin with zach today i have some questions for each of you and anyone who wants to talk at any time that's fine zach i would love to hear a little bit about your journey from uh from fan into professional if you will if you'll share a little bit of your origin story yeah, for sure. Um, so as I mentioned, I went to film school and um, I was in Vancouver, which is very close to Seattle. So um, because I grew up in a very small place where I currently live, um, there was no comic book conventions or anything out here. So I ended up going to Emerald City almost every year that I could. And I started to meet creators and, and sort of see, oh, comics is a pretty small community and the people who make them are awesome and they were very welcoming and i was writing screenplays at the time and you know anyone who's tried that realizes that it's pretty difficult to get a movie made um and what i was starting to put together was like i could you know be friends with an artist and figure out kind of how to make a thing on my own terms and so i started to go to the comic conventions meet people and started to kind of realize maybe i want to write comics so I started putting together scripts and, and met someone in film school that um, also was dissatisfied sort of with what they were doing and wanted to draw comics. And we ended up making like a, I think it was like a 10 page mini comic that I printed on the school computer um, and brought <laughs> to Emerald City with me. And I was like going to like the boom booth and being like, here you go. Here's the best thing that you've ever seen in your life. And, you know, uh, it wasn't great and it was also like the idea i think was that it was like a 75 issue series and just like we were completely you know gassing ourselves up about how amazing it was going to be but i got the bug i think that was the big thing is that and then there were so many people who actually were super kind to me about this crappy comic that i had made and and were like hey maybe you know you're a little bit too ambitious and and maybe this is like 
kind of not really how the industry works. And anyway, so I went back the next year and I went back with real pitch pages with uh, Eric Swadsky, um, who ended up drawing the dregs. Uh, that was my first comic at Black Mass Studios. And I actually just shared this on Twitter, but I sent that pitch into Black Mass's website, into the like slush pile, and eight months went by, nothing. And then Matthew Rosenberg saw me, knew who I was, pulled me aside, and he said, have you heard from Black Mask yet about these pitch pages? Because they're amazing. And I said, no. And then he said, just one second took out his phone, texted the editor-in-chief of Black Mask. We got invited to dinner with the editor-in-chief that night, and our book was greenlit that night. And that was Emerald City 2016. And then, like, Emerald City 20, 2017, I had the book with me. It was out, and everything kind of changed. In 2018, I was already working for Marvel. That was when Cable came out a year later, which is just like, yeah. So it's been like a weird roller coaster, and I, and I don't really... Uh, I haven't had the luxury of kind of like taking stock of it. I'm just every single day, just doing more work and being thankful for the ride. Uh, that's a crazy story. And we hear a lot of these types of stories where you never quite know when you're going to break in. Uh, having made a movie once, I will agree with you. It's nearly impossible. And then once yeah. it's done, it's hard to make a dime out of it. Uh, telling stories is really amazing. You've done a surprising amount of X-Men work. Was it your connection with Matthew that initially got you through that door? No. Um, so the my first book, The Dregs, was like a gritty crime book about a homeless person who thought he was a detective and takes it upon himself to sort of look into his missing friend. Axel Alonso read that book, um, who was the editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time, and there was only three issues out, and he cold-called me and Lonnie at our day job and said, hey, do you want to come work at Marvel? And we were like, we've only written three issues of, <laughs> of one comic series at this point. And he said, what do you like? What do you want to do? And I was like, I love the X-Men. And then that call came and went and we, and we thought, you know, we shot our shot, nothing. New York Comic Con was a couple months after that. We were there. He sees us on the floor, pulls us aside, introduces us to an X-Men editor. He says, get talking. And then... Again, a couple months go by, nothing really happened, but it was Bendis leaving Marvel for DC created this very interesting vacuum where all these books were sort of in the lurch because that was a very quick, uh, this might be in too inside baseball, but that was a very quick move. Apparently many people were not really prepared for it. And so they needed young people who were ready to write write books and ready to go. And Lonnie and I jumped at the chance. So they called us and they said, do you want to write cable? Um, you got to have an outline in a week. And we said, let's go. Let's do this. So this yeah. was a this was during a time when Marvel had reverted the books to their original numbering. Like if they had never yeah. been. Uh, I don't, anyway, so you wrote cable 155 through 159 with Lonnie Nadler. It's a beautiful beginning. Uh, you did the apocalypse degeneration kind of storylines through the yeah. black books uh, and then Age of X-Men, the marvelous X-Men, uh, which was quite the launch. Uh, Age of X-Men, we've talked about X-Men on the show before. Uh, X-Men comes back and creates this kind of messianic world where he's controlling everyone. And you get to write the X-Men team, like the premier X-Men team of this reality for five issues. And it's a pretty big deal. That must have felt like a, a huge jump for you at the time. 
I honestly, yeah, I mean, like we were at New York Comic Con when it got announced and it was just sort of like uh, very surreal because like you're saying, like this all kind of happened within one year, basically. So we went from like working on any book that we thought no one was reading to the premier X-Men team leaving an event. And um, that was a big trial by fire, but it was so much fun just because it was like we were welcomed into the sandbox and we got to work with all kinds of incredible other creative teams on these books like Vida Ayala and Leo Williams and they were coming into the X-Men world at the same time and so like we you know that's I don't think this is widely known but like we created a slack for Age of X-Men and that's sort of I think the genesis of this X slack that now exists but this was like because we really didn't know how to coordinate all this stuff right we were like, like given a spreadsheet with all the X-Men names on it and they said you guys have to figure out where what teams these characters go on. And Lonnie and I were like, okay. <laughs> and you're writing a group of X-Men who are like trying to stop people from reproducing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's a lot of fun. Uh, and what a great time and what a great amount of space. I've, I've met a number of your contemporaries from that time. Uh, Leah Williams being a, a favorite, of course, uh, and, and so many more. And you did some really good work. I want to come back and ask you about some of your more recent work in just a moment. But Balam, I would love to hear a little more about your journey. Uh, same question. Will you share a little bit of your origin story? Uh, you told us a little bit when you did your intro about your decision to pursue art. Uh, how did that lead into your professional career? Well, I was um, I did a, a master's degree on, on a public school um, focusing on editorial um, uh, projects. So what I did is, um, well, I'm telling you because I'm kind of proud of it. I I, I reached to seven friends, uh, and I tried to pull from the from Oblivion seven projects that they would have dreamed of but never became a reality. For example, uh, a, a friend had a um, like a book diary of of his garden. So it was his unique relationship with his plants. And that was it. There was the book, but he never printed it. So we bought a risograph printer, which is like, um, this used to be in churches and at schools. And they print these flyers with one, one ink uh, printers. And then we produced like this kind of fanzines or, or self-published books and, and made a collections of them and presented them in a, in a circle as a dialogue and made a party around those books so yeah it, it was it was super fun and, and when i found that experience i got i got um the the sense of of um belonging to to books this this awesome things that i are uh quite relationable uh and and like something that bounces us together books are, are somewhat of a, a special objects even from a gift or, or from memories, they always tend to to make these links and connections between people. So yeah, the, I love books. And, and so I didn't even at that time knew how I was going to become an artist, but I knew that I had to do that for a living. So yeah, I, I started uh, as a colorist, uh, French comics, doing French comics, which are called like Van de Cine. And then um, I stepped on like my own challenges and tried to become a penciler, a full artist, which is kind of weird because I know a lot of colorists or a lot of inkers or a lot of writers that want to do something else. 
So I, I was up to the challenge, and then I learned myself into into driving through a lot of years, and and doing exercising storytelling. Storytelling. So yeah, I started up with with humanized humanites helping out with with. You know, it, it, when you start up, is is well. At least in my case, it's not that fancy because it was like uh, we need to do the, these books, and we need them now, and and you have to do like twenty pages for tomorrow. So yeah, it was it was crazy. And then I, I get called by by Titan Comics, and I was I was working for for them. Uh, I was doing a graphic novel, and while I was doing that, I believe Marvel. Um, with with uh, their knowledge, um, they they got noticed that I was starting to sell books, so they called me. They they reached to me to my agency, so I had to do two graphic novels running at at the same time, which was something for me. It was out of this world. I was I was producing forty two pages per month almost. So I, I was yeah yeah I I wasn't even breathing. It was it was. Yeah, it was a challenge, but I wasn't gonna go. Uh, I wasn't gonna let go this this opportunity. So I did those two miniseries, and that run run. I did actually two. Yeah, one book for Titan Comics and one book for Marvel, and then I did another set of graphic novels for them. So I worked a year like that, and when I ended up that, uh, I was all. Um, tired and and worn out and burnt out so i had to make a, a choice so i stayed with marvel um, i'm still a freelancer i'm running on my i'm stepping on my third year so yeah i'm, I'm pretty proud of that and still my my paps for example always always tells me when are you gonna get a real job so yeah that's a good question to be asked now uh yeah. for our listeners we're only recording audio and i'm not calling anyone out here because this is a regular thing that happens on our show whenever i'm interviewing a professional artist they're always drawing while we're talking because they're so busy and both Enid and philip as we're engaging in this they're like busily drawing on the side because i know you guys are working so hard currently in the books and this is something we see on my show uh regularly uh, it, I just, I admire, so I, I I look at work differently now that I've gotten to know professionals. When I'm looking at pictures, I'm realizing how much effort goes into them. Uh, and I've written a couple of my own books even. And when you get those pages back and you realize the time and the painstaking effort, it's important to find that balance between creating opportunities, but not burning yourself out. And so to be in a position where you can do both is just an incredible thing. Uh, Philip, what did you do to your hand? <laughs> So thankfully I've done nothing to my hand. I have a friction glove on, which covers like the bottom half of my hand that I would slide across either my screen, which I'm currently drawing or paper if I'm traditionally. I also wear a uh, wrist brace with like a supportive metal thing in here and it just keeps my wrist more or less straight. So I'm not spending a lot of pressure bending it, which can cause injury over time. I've also found like when I start to work really, really hard, which I've been doing for the last month, couple months, my shoulder and elbow and wrist will start to get sore. So I just try to do supportive things along the way to keep them functioning and healthy in between trying to exercise some. So I'm okay. I'm just trying to be preventative and smart. <laughs> Hard working professionals in this room. And, and it's again, uh, again, my favorite part of the show, but just all of you are working so hard in this business. I'm just such a huge fan. It's an honor to have uh, all three of you here. 
Uh, let me shift back to Zach for just a minute. Some of your more recent work is some of my favorite of your work, although I love everything you've done. We're not going to talk about Dark Reign Superior 4, although it's a ton of fun. And Yondu, which was also a ton of fun. Maybe my favorite thing that you've written was your Kesar Lord of the Savage Land story. Now, on my show, we've given, uh, we're starting with the 60s characters. We do a monthly trial where I'll read a character's whole chronology and we'll put them on like a mock criminal trial. If you haven't heard any of the episodes, go back and listen. They're a ton of fun. Uh, we did one on Kesar a while back and we talk about how much we love your evolution of this character. By making him, you're you're kind of addressing the colonialism of it. You're addressing the concept of of uh, tribalism is not the right word, but community and indigenous communities and what it means to have a lack of resources and have to trade with the wider world and what global warming means for these spaces. Uh, and you do it in a really thoughtful, incredible way using the kind of monstrous character polyscions. Uh, tell us a little bit about this work and how it was received. This is my my single favorite of yours, if I had to choose one. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, that was, um, I wrote a book at Vault called No One's Rose, which is, uh, I wrote that with my wife, uh, Emily Horn, and we kind of did like an ecological allegory in that book. And um, Sarah Brunstad had read that book and reached out and said, hey, I love this. Do you want to come to Marvel and do some like ecological storytelling here? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, do you want to turn Kesar into Animal Man? And I was like, where <laughs> do I sign so up? Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so like, it, and we got talking and I said like, look, like one of the things that concerns me about writing this character is the ties to colonialism and the sort of like the Tarzan of it all and, and all that stuff. And, and she was very similar in her concerns. And so I said like, if we're going to, uh, revitalize them and give them powers let's also tackle this stuff head on and uh so we we built that book kind of like during the pandemic actually this was like it they reached out in march 2020 and then uh i i got to work i outlined the book the book got put on hold basically two weeks after i started working on it um it was on hold for almost an entire year and then we came out of the pandemic and they were like, yeah, you're good to go. We're going to, we're actually going to publish this. Let's, let's go back to script. And so I was able to sort of like sit with it for a year as well and sort of really think about what I wanted to achieve with that book. And, you know, I was very lucky to be paired with Ramon Garcia and Matt Mathis Lopez, who are a brilliant team and and created a really vibrant new kind of looking version of the savage land which was also very important to me um to kind of make it so we got to see different parts of the savage land but also all the different indigenous tribes that live in in these areas and sort of how Kesar is not necessarily part of that is sort of exist outside of it and then trying to get him with his new power set to be sort of more uh part of this this land that he's sort of claimed as his own right and so yeah it, i mean it, honestly a dream project and it looks like a dream and i'm just sort of like if that's the the only thing i'm remembered for at, at marvel then i can 
I can go and uh, die happy, honestly, because I'm just so thrilled with that project. And I was really given a lot of creative leeway to kind of do it the way that I wanted to. And I think that's kind of the the perk of working with a character like that that doesn't have a huge fan base. You can kind of like do whatever you want. I have spent a lot of time with this character in the last year uh, from various angles, uh, you know, examining uh, he and his family. One of my favorite moments, and this is just comic book trope, uh, he has a teenage son that was mysteriously made teenage. And you have a random line of dialogue that's like, he fell in a hole and came back a teenager, basically. <laughs> it's just yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. a random word bubble. <laughs> yeah. Well, because like that, that was also a thing, like I was reading it at, for research and then like, I didn't know that he was a teenager. I thought he was still a child. And then they're like, no, no, no. There's like this one issue of this one thing where he's now a, a, a teenager. And I was like, okay, interesting. <laughs> we have to address that in some way. And then I read the issue and I was like, that's a good summary. <laughs> they just did that. They just did that with Iceman's boyfriend, Romeo. Uh, that's a lot to explain. But when time traveling teenage Iceman comes to the present, he's got a teenage boyfriend and then he goes back to the past. And now adult Iceman exists. And recently they were like, oh, look, Romeo's all grown up. He like fell in a portal and like aged there. And now he's back. <laughs> so, <laughs> great Comics. way to age up your, your characters when you need to. It's a really impressive and a really beautiful series. So check out uh, check out this particular series, Case Our Lord of the Savage Land, if you have not. Your most recent work, and this is one I'd love to hear from Philip on as well. We got to talk with Philip a little bit last time. Uh, was the Marrow story everyone has been waiting for for so long. And I will say it, although no one else, uh, maybe you guys can't, it's definitely a Marrow and Pharaoh love story. And we get the Morlocks content that we've been waiting for. And it's lovely. Uh, and you use the character Max Frankenstein, of all people. <laughs> uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about this run you had on X-Men Unlimited. It's so fun. Yeah, I mean, it it was born of of wanting to tell that Marrow story, wanting to to kind of give people the marrow story that they're waiting for. Um, and I mean, I was lucky to work with Philip on it and, and we were able to kind of like really hone in on that emotional relationship between Marrow and Farrell and sort of like, you know, marrow has been flirting with uh, being bi for a very long time. And uh, we wanted to make sure that that wasn't forgotten. I think that was the big thing uh, with the book was making sure that that was brought to the sort of modern Kokoa era, because you there's a Brian K. Vaughn issue that you can read with Marrow and Kitty Pride, and it is the yearning for Kitty that Marrow has, and that it, it is, it just leaps off the page. <laughs> It's it's really fun. And Bliss is there, who we love as well, of course. <laughs> uh, Philip, what was it like working on this series? You got to draw these classics. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I think one of the things that I love the most is Zach and I have known each other for a couple of years. In fact, as you were talking about the New York Comic Con that Age of X-Men got announced, I was like, that might have been the show where we like met in person for the first time and hung out. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, anyone who knows Zach knows how much he loves body horror. And I'm reading through the script. And it just part way through it just clicks. You've got Marauders, you've got Bliss, you've got Farrell, you've got Mary, you've got all these Max Frankenstein, all this stuff. I was like, oh, this is just Zach doing like his favorite body horror in an X-Men comic. <laughs> and it's it's real fun. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I got to work off kind of the updated designs that Stefano Casili did last time we saw all those characters in Jerry's Marauders. 
and then just kind of get to, to get to go from there, get to draw Madripoor. And, and I think to, to Zach's point, kind of, um, you know, uh, reminding, reemphasizing, making sure that aspects of, of Marrow's, uh, somewhat as unspoken as you as you have to be uh, sexuality like how do I what do I do in these interactions and scenarios that that uh, continues that that feeling of, of longing and connection because I, I love that about marrow in that her desire to be connected to the people around her and yet her trauma and personality and lots of other things kind of throws up walls that creates those barriers uh, so what could we do? Kind of with her body language and interactions that would kind of show the way that she's trying to work around those mental blocks and those those things like that so yeah it was a real i think it was the the first five parter i did for marvel unlimited my previous x-men story was just a two-parter so it was fun to work on something that's uh, akin to about an issue and a half of print comics and get develop uh, a better rhythm and a uh, comfortableness and familiarity with the characters which usually I mean, if you're starting on a series, I'm sure Balam could agree to this. I, for me, it takes at least 15 pages before I feel like I know what's going on. And then sometimes yeah. like by issue three, I'm like, oh, okay, I finally know what I'm drawing. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, Philip, has also worked with Thorin Groundbook. Thorin gets to take this character, uh, Marrow, on her next journey in Realm of X pretty soon. I love Thorin. We had so much fun with her on my show. I can't wait to see what she does with this character. Yeah. Uh, Leah Williams is remembered, I think, by most X-Men fans by having the queerest X-Men team so far with X-Factor, where there was, uh, you know, Prodigy and North Star and a number of gay or bi characters. Uh, but I don't know if people have been paying attention. Charlie Jane Anders and Balam are currently writing the New Mutants uh, series in Lethal Legion, which I think is the gayest and queerest team in X-Men history all at once. Uh, Escapade and Morgan Red are both trans. Uh, we have Karma and Galora on the team. We have Sarah Bella, who is interested in... Uh, in Escapade. We've got huge allies like Scout and Wolvesbane and Mirage, and there's not a single male defining character on this team except Hibbert the Turtle, and I don't even know what their <laughs> gender pronouns are. Uh, we've also got this great team in the Lethal Legion with Count Nefaria and Moonstone and Scylla Markham, a weird old Darkhawk villain named Volga Bell and Unicorn, who I've literally done a whole episode on. I love these characters. And Balam, your pencils are iconic on this. I'm really loving it. Ta uh, talk to me a little bit about Thank your work you. with uh, Charlie Jane, who I adore well, this this was my first uh, team uh, that I drew, and also, for example, I had previously done Hawkeye, which was this cute dynamic of a girl and her dog. But w when New Mutants is, uh, was knocking on my door, uh, when I received the script, it was almost double the size of a regular script. So I, I didn't expect that, you know, there's there's a lot of dynamic between the characters. And at a time, for example, for issue number four, there was 11 or 12 characters intermingled and, and having actions in a single page, for example, in, in several panels. So it's quite a challenge. I haven't had this experience. And when I was doing, for example, when I was reaching half of, the, of a book, I was already tired, something that had never happened because drawing so many characters at the same time and having this this acting and interaction. I mean, but it's it's not it, just it's not just like 12 characters. It's also Escapade whose power it is to change places back and forth with different characters. Yeah, which makes it even it's, harder. <laughs> yes. Sometimes there's wolves. Sometimes I, I also designed a, a sewer dragon. 
so yeah, there, there's a lot of things going on, <laughs> and Hebert is always flying around them. So it was a bunch of things uh, running through my head. It was uh, uh, an enormous and life-changing experience. It's a challenge, yeah, yeah, because it's like a dance, as as Charlie Jane has described it earlier. It's a dance, but my job is to to play the characters in a sense where they shine, where where they they'll have a, a moment to shine, to to look well, to develop their powers, for example. So so yeah, it's somewhat of a thinking thing. When I'm when I'm doing layouts, I have to to be really. Uh, usually, I, I listen to music or podcasts when I'm working, but right doing New Mutants, I was really focused on on the pages and trying to place all the characters and breaking my my head and trying to to figure <laughs> out how to how to place them, how to make them lovely or or of these attributes that all the characters have to preserve their attributes. Uh, it's really fun. And you're doing, all three of you are just incredible. You're you're at the top of your games. And it's fun hearing how much love you put into all of this. Uh, and I can't wait for the end of New Mutants. Uh, Zach, has your next project at Marvel been announced yet? No, it has not. And Bilam, how about you? I, I know it, but I cannot tell it yet. <laughs> uh, Philip, Philip, same thing. So all three of you have work coming out that I can't wait to hear more about. And this is really exciting because you're all great. Uh, blanket question for all of you. As a fan, what's your favorite era of X-Men comics? Do you have a favorite book, a favorite uh, specific era that you love? Uh, Philip, I know you're very much in love with uh, with Daddy Cable. We got to talk a lot about him in the, in the <laughs> Summers Family episode. I mean, I I love the Grant Morrison New X-Men. I think mm -hmm. their whole reinvigoration of the X-Men was so instrumental to me and in, in, in that it uh it got me back into reading X comics like regularly. And um yeah, I mean I, I revisit the some of those issues almost every year, um, uh, finding something new in Grant's scripts and and all of the wonderful artists that they collaborated with. And honestly, like if I had my way, I've talked to Marvel so many times about um, the special class during that arc and like getting all of those characters back together. <laughs> Basilisk and Tattoo. There's so many great ones. <laughs> yeah, the dummy, the just the bag of gas. Like, ugh. Why are you calling characters. me out like that, Zach? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Balam, how about you? Do you have a favorite era? Well, I don't know if I if I may, but instead of an era, I will say um, the current the current process of opening up into new concept introduced uh, this type of um, well inclusivity. There is something I haven't seen in comics. So, for example, I'm 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 a really soft person. So, whenever I have the chance to to emphasize innocence. Uh, tenderness, friendship. That's what I really like to go instead of, for example, drawing a massacre or drawing uh, something really awful or, or dark. I, I, I don't know. I'm really looking for for something bright, something uh, colorful, and and to bring this world something something lovely. You know. So yeah, I, I'm in love on, on what's happening uh, recently in the last recent decade. Uh, I have received, for example hate messaging regarding this this new mutant series which makes me know it it's moving things so yeah i'm 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 actually really proud and honored to be to be working under under sarah Brunstad command and and another great editors and writers so yeah 
I, I would say actual, actual, actual comics. Right now, comics that would be my my favorite. That's wonderful. My uh, my first era when I was first picking up books is my answer here, and it's Inicia's uh, run on X Force, uh, which is All where right. I started collecting. Uh, this kind of idea of youth and rebellion and reclaiming self and, you know, taking the dream and putting a different spin on it. Uh, it I, I don't even, I think I'm just now, I've interviewed Fabian even, and I think I'm just now starting to realize in my 40s how much of an impact that had on my adolescence. It was really powerful for me. Uh, Philip, how about you? Um, yeah, as, as far as like individual title, um, Astonishing X-Men is my favorite uh, X-Men story of all time. I love Grant's uh, run. That's probably like number two. But uh, the, just the, the style of Astonishing still gets me. I reread four or five issues in prep for our summers uh, thing. And no matter how many times I read that book, the, there's still character moments that choke me up every single time. And just there's something about like the classic nature of it. It, it, it exists out of its continuity kind of that I really enjoy. As far as like an era, yeah, like uh, early to mid 90s X-Men, uh, like that family is insane in the best way possible. And yeah, Fabian's work is the best of that group. And there's just like a limitless amount of ideas and not all of them work and not every crossover is great. And there's just that saturation of how many books can we get out at one point because we're making so much money. Um, but there's that, that um, imagination is what inspired me as a kid. And still to this day, like just going back through just X-Men 22 and prep for our, our thing where it's like you know, <laughs> a Cyclops cutting wood in Alaska and the na neighbor shows up and turns out as Mr. Sinister all along. And it's just kind of like all this stuff that is just crazy ideas. And that's what I will always love about X-Men. Uh, no, we will eventually release it on the main show. But if you would like to sign up for the Patreon, not only would we enjoy your support, but Philip and I did a really epic episode. I promise it's it's really it's really wonderful. Uh, now, we've spent a lot of time on the 05 on my show. We literally have an entire episode for each run through the 60s run, plus all of the uh, the modern content. It's really fun to do these flashback books because we get to step back and also introduce new people. Uh, today, we get to introduce uh, a couple of brand new characters to the show. We have introduced the concept of alternate timelines. We've talked about the Age of Apocalypse. We've talked about Days of Future Past. We've spent some time on Cable and his crazy future 2,000 years hence. Uh, we've also talked uh, about Rachel Summers and uh, her crazy time travel. Uh, Madam, Madam Sanctity is a character Demanda Martini and I did an episode on, and it's all about this concept as well. So Marvel has this thing where if you go back in time and try to change things, it doesn't change things. It just creates a new timeline. And so the world you came from is still out there, but also now you've created a new world. And our main universe, Earth 616, has a lot of timeline tampering in it. Uh, we're going to focus on one character and his individual Earth for a few minutes today. Uh, I'm going to ask all of you about Bishop in just a moment, but let me introduce this character. Uh, so Earth 1911 is the future where Bishop comes from. He first appears in Uncanny X-Men number 282, which is in 1991. I was collecting the books at the time or shortly after. I like began right around this time. And I think my first interaction with Bishop when I was an early teen was kind of like, why? Why do we need another time-traveling character? We've already got cable. It's already complicated. Uh, but Bishop has gone on to mean something very specific for the X-Men in, in a way that Cable has as well. Bishop is huge. He's a big, muscular, thick black man with long, thick hair. 
he comes from a future in which it's very days of future past like mm -hmm. in that mutants and humans have a very complicated reality mutants have been in concentration camps and bishop is a cop in this world and we're going to talk about him being african-american well he's actually not American. He he's Australian, but we're just going to call him black for this episode. Uh, he is a cop in a world where cops are very frowned upon. He's part of a team called XSE or Xavier's Security Enforcers. And he's traveling back in time to capture a man named Trevor Fitzroy, who, although he's never come out, is real gay. <laughs> he's got green hair. <laughs> he drains life from people and opens portals with it. And uh, he ends up stranded in the past because his allies die. And then there is a long, long history uh, in the future of the X-Men as he's part of uh, X-Men and Extreme X-Men and the Hellions. He's currently a war captain on Krakoa. This character's mythos has been added to over and over again as people add more and more things to this future timeline where he came from. Uh, I'm going to toss some names out there that will not mean anything except you're very, unless you're very familiar with this character. But we have The Witness, who is an elderly gambit. We have Hope Summers, who apparently is uh, responsible in some weird version of the future for killing a lot of humans, and it thus caused Bishop's future. So Bishop spent a lot of time running around different realities trying to murder a baby because of this. That was not part of this show today. We have Gateway, who is his great grandfather. We have a shard who is his little sister and a hologram version of her also comes back to the present. Uh, there's the famous X-Men traitor storyline, which is directly involved with the onslaught. There is the 12. There is the character Mountjoy, who's a very creepy guy. We also have a long run in X-Factor where Layla Miller goes to the future and she is responsible for Fitzroy dies and her power is to reanimate you, except it takes your soul away. So this villain Fitzroy is missing his soul because of this. All of this is added later and there's a lot of continuity mixed in, but Bishop represents a lot to the franchise. He is a cop. He is a time traveler. He is dedicated to his team, to his mission, to his cause, almost Almost more than any other character. He's almost difficult to define. His power is to absorb kinetic energy, not like Sebastian Shaw does. If you punch Sebastian Shaw, he absorbs the energy. Bishop, it's like energy blasts. You can still shoot him with a gun. We're going to be talking about that today a little bit. Uh, but he can absorb energy blasts and redirect it as more powerful concussive force, force, force blasts, I suppose. So before we get into it, let me hear some of your thoughts on Bishop. What do you guys love about this character? Do you have a relationship to him? Uh, uh, Zach, I know you've written him a little bit, at least. Uh, what are your thoughts yeah. on Bishop? Um, so I, I got to write him in my cable run um, and... For those who haven't read it, my cable run is sort of like these five different moments in Cable's history. So Lonnie and I got to write uh, like baby killer Bishop <laughs> or wannabe baby killer. Uh, so he's after hope in our issue. And um, I think that's probably one of his more maligned periods where people were pretty conflicted about that characterization because it sort of in the wake of Messiah War, it doesn't feel super grounded in who he was up until that point. But I find him interesting because of that conviction. And I think that that's probably one of the things that is consistent across the board is that he's always very, he's like, he's very convicted about doing what it needs to be done. And he's, you know, uh, trying to protect mutant kind in his own way, shape and form. And sometimes that's 
not, uh, you know, it doesn't have the best justification or whatever, but he's a very strong character that has this like very clear sense of right and wrong. Um, so he, it makes him very fun to write. He's also a huge powerhouse, right? So he's great as a foil with Cable, which I think um, is going to be a lot of fun in that new Children of the Vault series. I'm very excited, actually. Yeah. Uh, Balam, do you have a relationship or or thoughts on uh, on Bishop? Yeah, when I was a kid, um, there was this uh, promotional thing with with sodas here in Mexico that they, if you gather three corks or or the 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 lids of the of the sodas, you can interchange them uh, with half a dollar to obtain this set of uh, collectible cards, which were called uh, Pepsi cards. And I have a, I have a, almost all of them. I'm missing one, <laughs> but there was the but Bishop was one of my favorite characters. Even though I didn't knew him, in the back of the cards there was a, a really brief legend of of there, of, of them. And so I, I don't know why I, I've always related him uh, with this movie from cheesy movie from Van Damme, uh, Time Cop, which was super cheesy for me. <laughs> but, um, uh, or or um, uh, what was the other uh, time soldier i don't know he had a bunch of those movies so yeah it, it was a, a fun character and this this uh excitement for me I, i'm a rural boy i grew up in a in a almost in a farm so reading about these characters always was such an amazing experience such mind-bending experience to even think about uh, uh time travel so they were like like um like magnets for me looking at them at them their appearance their powers their weapons their i don't know what they they had uh they they met made to to my mind but it was a a, a true fascination so yeah i ended up uh, reading about um for example uh, last year um uh Nobel Prize in Physicist was uh, gained by three um, astrophysicists, which, which actually described superluminal travel, which is faster than, than light, and a, a quantum effect on matter, which actually tends to prove that there's retrocausality, something that happens earlier or before it even actually happens. So it, it's been proven by, by science. So far, I believe time travel can be done only backwards, only only to the past. So at a molecular level, so or theoretical level. So yeah, they are really fascinating to me. Uh, and then Philip, my my answer is going to sound really dumb coming after that. But um, I, the, one of the first issues I ever picked up as a kid was one of the X Factor crossover issues of Executioner Song. I think I got that out all right. And it was a Jay Lee drawn issue where Bishop, Cable, and Wolverine are all working together. And these are just, it is Jay Lee ripped to the maximum. You've never seen a more like ripped pair of manly dudes. Uh, <laughs> I think that was probably the first time I saw Bishop. But I mean, at the comic stores at the time, and I don't know if this was singular to North American comic stores or what, but the uh, the valuable hot books would always be placed like up on the wall behind the register. Those were the wall books. And Bishop's first appearance is one of the first wall books I saw. And I was like, oh, man, this character is important. He's got a wall book. Um, and, you know, being a time traveler with a enigmatic past is, is just, a, you know, that's kind of my, my sweet spot in comics. 
Uh, so that mystery to him was real cool. Uh, I loved that he became kind of a linchpin in the age of apocalypse because of his time displaced state. He didn't get essentially absorbed into a collapsing timeline. He existed and that stuff was all really cool. Um, and like, that was what I loved about the character. You know, as an adult now re-examining some of Bishop's not only past, but his, you know, kind of his his foundational structure uh who he was and what he meant to mutant kind is a little little problematic uh makes me want to think through and kind of read some of the recent stuff i'm really interested to read the new uh war college mini yeah. that jay has been writing i just wait till it'll be done and then i'll read it all on marvel unlimited in, in my non-existent spare time but yeah it's a complicated character obviously hope and cable are huge uh, favorites of mine so to have bishop as the foil and antagonist to that duo very quickly was like okay he's the bad guy now because he's trying to hurt my favorite son and daughter uh favorite father and daughter so uh yeah yeah that's kind of you know what i think about bishop uh three things i'll say about bishop quickly and then we're going to introduce today's issue number one storm for many 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 years was the only black character on the team there are other yeah. characters but they are not very well known i think bishop is the second because when you go down from bishop you start to get into characters like frenzy and Tempo and Oya, who just do not have an extensive history with the team. So for this black male character to represent such a legacy to the team, it's a really big deal. Second, we have a Cable who is born in our timeline to Scott and Madeline, right? And we also have Rachel, who is Scott and Jean's daughter. These are legacy characters who are kind of messianic in a way, who come from dark futures. Bishop represents that, but in a different way. He comes from a future that's farther away. It's 80, 90 years. I mean, Cables is 2000. But it's a, a, a history where the, the X-Men are dead and their legacy is only in, in mystery or rumor. And so him trying to piece together what uh, being mutant means in this time versus where he comes from is a big deal. The third, and this is iconic for this character, is in his time, everybody who is a mutant is branded with the letter M over one of their eyes. And this is a, this is something we saw happen to Jamie Madrix uh, later as well, because he spent time there. Uh, but there's something about that. He represents a lot of really powerful story structure to a lot of people. Uh, so uh, here's an X-Men quiz really quickly. Random fact. I think most really storied X-Men fans would not know the answer to either of these questions. When Bishop first comes back, he is with two buddy cops named Malcolm and Randall, who basically die in their second appearance. And we're going to see them today. They're both big, burly guys with like thick hair, and they're just hot cops, and they're his best friends from the XSE. <laughs> uh, what is Malcolm and Randall's mutant powers? I don't think most people know this. They think of them as the time cops with the guns. Uh, do any of you know? <laughs> no. You no. have to read close. And these are characters everyone remembers, but I don't think anyone remembers their powers. So listeners, if you knew this before I said it, shoot me a ping because that's very impressive. Malcolm has the rather unimpressive power to be able to scan you and know if you are human or not. That's pretty much it. Uh, so he's kind of like, uh, in his world, that's valuable because he knows if you're mutant or human. Randall can take radiation and kind of process it and make it not harmless or not harmful anymore. And that's their whole thing. Other than that, they're time cops. They have different personalities, but uh, there's a, some fun X-Men trivia that you may not even remember once this episode ends. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Okay, so let me let me officially introduce today's issue. We have three flashback month issues left to review. This is one of them. Uh, this, all if right. you remember, in 1997, Marvel had the edict that all of their current running titles were to go back and tell stories that were set prior to Fantastic Four number one. So basically, the premise in this issue is: What if Bishop had arrived back before the X Men ever formed? Uh, that's kind of the easy premise of what is happening here. Okay, so the uh, this is from uh, uh, 1997. Uh, this is written by Ben Rabb and Ariel Ariel Olivetti is the penciler. Pierre Brito is the inker. Uh, we've got Chris Eliopoulos and vi Virtual Calligraphy, which is a lettering company on letters. Uh, Matt Webb on colors and Kelly Corvais uh, on edits. So there's a lot going on here. What if the simple premise here is... They just ask big questions from continuity. What if Dark Phoenix had lived? What if Wolverine became the Hulk? Like just random stories that these people got to tell. Now, prior to this issue, I emailed Ben Rabb and I asked him to share his recollections on this issue because we're friends from this show. Uh, here are Ben's quick thoughts on what if minus one. And this is, again, nearly 30 years ago. He said, hey, Chad, aside from the fact that this was my second what if with Ariel Olivetti, the first being issue number 88, which is Arachnomorphosis. What if Peter Parker's son was a mutant whose art I loved and the fact that I thought it would be cool to do a different spin on those early Bishop appearances in Uncanny X-Men. One thing I vaguely remember about this issue was that there may have been a set of repeated balloons on one of the pages that somehow snuck past editorial eyes and made it to print. And there was. We'll talk about that. Uh, sorry, I don't have more to offer. This is one of those I haven't revisited in decades, and the old memory just ain't what it used to be. So uh, thank you, Ben, for your response. Uh, now, I'll open this book for us very quickly. Uh, as we open this book... On the cover, we see uh, Ariel Lilibetti is a, a really unique but uh, really wonderful penciler, and I'd love to hear all of your thoughts on his art style. We see a flashback, What If, starring Bishop. The corner cover box has Malcolm and Randall in it. Uh, Bishop, the man from the future, and Bishop is passing through a time portal into the present. It's a race to stop, uh, a race against time to stop Fitzroy from altering history and destroying the X-Men. Uh, what are your thoughts on this cover? And I'd love to hear your general thoughts on Ariel's art style. Ariel Olivetti is an Argentinian artist, and I really enjoy kind of seeing his early work uh, and then knowing where it evolves to, because he, again, is a really great masculine, very, like, uh, full-volumed, like, figures. Uh, his, his, his Cable, his Hulk, his Captain America are always just these slabs of beef. Looking at some of his earlier stuff here, I can see stuff that feels like older Mike Mignola in his approach and simplicity, uh, and then some... And not exactly Mobius, but almost a slight European vibe to kind of how he approaches stuff. It's a little less uh, dynamic and bombastic than kind of where some of his stuff goes. It's like uh, on kind of that Mignola clarity approach to his storytelling. But it's fun to see uh, his his uh, work at this point in his career a little bit uh cleaner and simple lined approach it there's times it almost feels kevin nolan-esque and you can kind of see the proliferation of nolan's and in, uh influence especially in a, that generation of artists any other thoughts on ariel's art yeah i i was thinking the same um there was uh also an argentinian artist Ch chilean argentinian uh, who passed away i believe four years ago uh, and he was working at the time in the 70s on the Meta Barons series for humanoids which was called he was called Jorge Jimenez 
And I believe uh, uh, um, Ariel Olivetti and other uh, whom at the time were were um, on, on their thirties, I believe they would they were uh, quite impacted by by Jorge Jimenez's work, which was watercolor and wash, um, the more European traditional artist. And then uh, he mixed his his style in this era with with Mignola. I got the sense as well uh, when I when I looked at this um, like uh, simplistic way to to draw and big dark blocks of ink, as well as as some when they be, when the characters become silhouettes or they are seen at a distance. This time of this type of simplification, for example, the hands. They tend to to mimic or copy a lot of uh, Mignolas, for example, early um, oh this this pirate series, mm, gray gray I don't know and the and Mouser I don't know that that series has a lot oh, of far, it. Far Fed and gray Mouser. Yeah, yeah, it has a lot of it. This this type of of characters and well, it's Marvel, but also has this type of influences. I I feel as as same as Philip. Uh, Zach, do you have any thoughts here? Uh, all I was going to say, nothing about his art style, but just interesting that he becomes almost the definitive bishop, baby killer uh, <laughs> artist later on, right? Like he's he's part of that very, I would say that Dwayne Swedinsky run on cable is like one of the more definitive runs on the character. And I think most, if not all of that run is drawn by Olivetti. Yeah, yeah. Who who's very uh, mature as an artist at this point compared to now? This you can tell this yes. is early work when you compare the two. Uh, so my least favorite part of the flashback month issues are always these Stanley rip through the page in a weird space. Uh, he looks he looks he, Stanley has not had a good day. <laughs> He's ripping through a page using a lot of alliteration. He's got his signature red glasses on, his thick mustache, and an M over his eye because it's Bishop. And he's basically using a lot of alliteration to say, hey, look, it's flashback, flashback month. And he mentions Irving Forbush, uh, which is, the, you know, the old obscure Marvel uh, mention of Forbush man. Uh, we get Stanley presents a pulse pounding parable of erratic era evacuation and existential angst that just had to be called the traitor. Uh, we go into the year 2089, and I'm only going to read this initial caption. After more than a century of turmoil between Homo sapiens and its offshoot mutant breed, Homo superior, genetic segregation is the order of the day in this less than brave new world. Nowhere is that policy more stridently enforced than here at the maximum security prison designed specifically for hostile mutant recidivists, the gene pool. Now, this is very much a Fitzroy story. Fitzroy is a very chaotic character. He's part of the upstarts when he comes to the past, which is the group that's hunting down people for points. He probably still exists in our present timeline. Last we saw him, he was in the custody of the Office of National Emergency, O-N-E, right before Krakoa launched. So this character's waiting for some sort of country back. He's uh, a lot of fun. He's running around escaping from prison uh, and he's got a, a jumpsuit on that's just he's got it open completely for some reason just to keep his bare <laughs> chest out. This guy's always just a little gay. Uh, he's, uh, he's thinking about uh, how he wants to escape and do something different. Uh, the cops are after him. He drains one of their life forces and uh, uses that to open a portal into the past. Uh, they're trying to capture him, capture him to put him back in solitary confinement. 
Bishop and Malcolm and Randall are all right there. Now, the variation of the real story that takes place in the X-Men books is slightly different than this, but that's fine. This is a what-if book. Uh, uh, Bishop warns, take one step closer and I'll ventilate that Dayglow skull of yours so fast your brain will be making the time slip solo. Uh, we also see uh, that random text bubble appear on the other side of the double page spread, just randomly connected. It looks like a gun on the ground is speaking. <laughs> Again, just an editorial mistake. Uh, the handbook guys can try to get a no prize for finding uh finding this out uh fitzroy says ah if it isn't randall malcolm and the ever redoubtable bishop the xavier's security enforcers best and brightest losers now there's a commentary about this that we're not going to delve deep into but the idea that in this world where mutants are oppressed they are also expected to police themselves there's commentary on this in any minority community when you have people who are part of the minority group who are trying to police the part of the group that uh, that is breaking the rules set by the majority and not the minority. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there's that's certainly something that we can delve into with uh, queer analysis. Uh, and Bishop being a Black character in this world, we're going to have comments on what that means as he time travels back and meets some local white cops in just a minute. Uh, so uh, Fitzroy opens the portal Bishop is very angry, but uh, Fitzroy escapes through. Uh, Malcolm and Randall warn him not to follow, but he pushes for them to go through after him. And that's kind of where the book uh, begins. Uh, Zach, do you want to keep us running with the next few pages? Tell us what happens next. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, Bishop goes on a little bit of a rant about why they have to go into the past. And we sort of see... Um, some visions of Jean at like her sort of modern age at that point. But when they go through into the past, we cut to Westchester and we start to realize that it's much earlier than Bishop originally arrived. So we see a young Jean Grey get out of like a her father's car and she's only like what five or six years old here let me and, uh let me have you pause for just a second that yeah. scene with gene gray in the future i don't know were you reading the x uh the onslaught comics when they came out in the 90s mm -mm, no. this was a big reveal onslaught had been running around in the comics for a while and bishop had been talking about how there was going to be a big traitor and there's a scene in the Bishop comics in the 90s where he, in his future, saw an image of Jean Grey, but most of the text of her words is missing. It's very like Princess Leia, you know, Obi-Wan, help me. You're my only hope. But a lot of the words are missing. So uh, nobody knows who the traitor is going to be. But there's a recorded image of Jean like, help, he's coming after all of us. He's someone that we trusted. We don't know who it is. And we get this issue in the original Onslaught issue in the 90s, where Jean is being attacked by Charles Xavier. And she's uh, announcing, because Xavier's been overrun by the evil influence of Magneto. That's not the story we need to worry about right now. Uh, okay. But it's the big reveal that Xavier's the big bad guy. So this image, this future image he's seeing of the video recording is a direct reference to the Onslaught run uh, and Bishop's history with the X-Men at that time. Uh, so so this is like one of the few characters Bishop knows. And when we go back, we now see Jean at like nine years old, right? So it's kind of a yeah. crazy time jump. Uh, but go ahead. Yeah, so basically we just see Jean as a as a child. And then Xavier is like, uh, maybe I'm going to start training her um, and training her mutant powers. And then he's like, maybe I'll tell her dad that she's a mutant. And then he's like, nah, I'm going to just fry in Jean's dad's mind and send him home. Just classic old school Xavier where he's just tempering tampering with people's brains all the time, which is really fun. Um, and, but we and, get kind this, of, like... and kind of rapey. 
I'm going to take your yeah. daughter into my house and erase your memory. Blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's gross. But there is a really cool panel on one of these pages where it's like, there's definitely like a Phoenix inspired uh, like word balloons and sort of the, the way that they draw or where that Ariel did his like eyes and stuff is really fun. I, I would, I kind of like stopped me dead uh, with that panel. And Xavier then, um, using his powers with his crazy eyebrows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's crazy, like Phoenix-like eyebrows. But it's um, <laughs> around here where the story takes a turn. Uh, so we see sort of like where Bishop and his buddies end up. They land in Salem Center and they go into like Harry's hideaway. And as they arrive, uh, there's like a a guy out back who's like throwing out the trash and he notices that these guys are, or sorry, Fitzroy is here. Never mind. I'm, I'm looking at it as I'm describing it. And Fitzroy's in this like gem, like 3D armor and he grabs this mm-hmm. dude and basically just instant murders him. <laughs> now this is a this is Harry's hideaway. So yeah. in, the, in the Claremont run, all the X Men would go hang out at the local bar. This is where like Nightcrawler would turn on his image inducer. This is the famous like bar fight between uh, Colossus and Juggernaut that like leveled the bar. So this is Harry who's like my business is successful, but then Fitzroy fucking kills him <laughs> in the alley. So clearly this timeline has taken a different turn. <laughs> yeah, I was so surprised when they were like, oh, that was Harry. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Just one punches from uh, Fitzroy. So we see Fitzroy, like, walk off, and he sort of realizes, well, actually, they make a very big point that his gem armor, or whatever it may be, is uh, his crystalline armor, sorry, is drawing too much attention. So he has to switch his clothing and sure enough, he gets a open shirt that's open all the way down to the bottom of his waist. Yeah, my, my crystal around. armor is too is too uh, too much. So let me walk around with my green hair and my open suit coat. <laughs> yeah, and and green goatee. Don't yep, forget. yep. I actually really <laughs> love this very chaotic villain. Uh, Balam, will you take us through the next part? Tell us what happens. Yeah, sure. Uh, there's a per- paper boy who's talking about. Um, like new AI thing on robotics and new research. So he's super into it. Um, then Fitzroy looks at uh, one of the one of the guys in the paper and he notices that uh, through the timeline, there is still no X-Men. I mean, they haven't been configured yet. So yeah, the, uh, the, the announcement of the robotics technology is a Sentinels reference. So he's realizing, mm-hmm. oh, this is like years before the Sentinels were made, which means I must be prehistory. Prehistory. And then we cut into a next, next page where there's this beautiful image of, of um, the, the guy on the bar who is already laying on the floor dead. And at the same time, this uh, Terminator scene when this portal opens and these fellows are, are uh, Bishop and his friends, uh, all DC and, and like, uh, yeah, DC and feeling sick from the travel. Then uh, the establishment, the establishment owner's wife screams out loud, "Murders!" because she's looking at his, his, his. Um, yeah, the the her husband's dead body in the alley. 
<laughs> it was her, Harry, right? So she's yep. horrified. She's screaming out loud, and but also this this is important. Uh, she's also um, scared of them because of of their skin color, of their indumentary, of their. She assumes right away that, that they are the killers. Uh, she she doesn't ask any questions. She just points out loud that they are the the killers, and in that um, scene. She enters the. She re-enters the establishment, the bar, and the cops as well assumes that they are the killers. So the question, no questions asked. They draw their weapons. And they point them to to Bishop, who's kindly trying to or, or or gently trying to explain the situation. So he's reaching for um, his. Uh, is it a CD or, or something like an He's, ID? Yeah, he says it's the ID. warrant the warrant for Fitzroy's arrest, but it's like a the, CD the, ROM. <laughs> yeah, it's a CD ROM, and and then uh, no question asked. They they uh, draw their their the fire into into Bishop's uh, body, hitting him on the shoulder on the on the left shoulder, which is a um, classic uh, shooting scene. And then there's this vertical panel with with the uh, onomatopoeia, the blam blam blam. Yeah. And and this is an uncomfortable scene. We'll spend just a moment on yeah. it. There, we we have a very different understanding in 2023 of America's mm. history of police violence against Black people. Here we have a Black man with his hands extended saying, here, I'm reaching into my pant, like, I'm pulling this paper out of my belt. Please don't shoot. And they shoot him anyway. And then, I, I'm spoiler for the next page, but they murder Malcolm and Randall, who die yeah. in both timelines. These guys were doomed no matter which one they entered through. But Bishop cannot be hurt by energy blasts, but he can be hurt by bullets. Uh, and this is All an right. uncomfortable scene anytime we see anything like this in comics. Well, his friends are dead. He's, he's uh, in pain. And then the police pull out these, these shackles to try to, to submit him. And he throws this magnificent kick into the, uh, into the chest of one of them. And he escapes out of a window this actually this page is is lovely uh, layout the, the the formality and the classical six panels it, it's quite nice so we only see silhouettes at the end when he tries to when he escapes the police running away in an, in an alley so they they these guys are horrified because they emptied the whole clip of the gun into of bullets and onto bishop and they did harm him but but he survived so they are um surprised uh when we get back to the x mansion this puts us into jean gray's chronology if you remember her origins she witnessed her best friend annie richardson die in a car accident and this is xavier thinking about oh jean because she witnessed this death and experienced it it's affected her telepathy prematurely which is part of her continuity right uh but again this is a wildly different world because now there's mutants in his town uh time traveling uh, uh, Philip, do you want to take us from there? Tell us what happens uh, to conclude the book. Sure, yeah. So Xavier, in these thoughts, he noticed the TV is on in the background and it is uh, referencing the shootout and the violence at the bar. Um, and he catches a glimpse of either Malcolm or Randall. It doesn't matter because they're not, they're the same character. They're both red shirts. Um, and his, <laughs> the, the badge reads Xavier's security enforcers, which is the XSE, which is the cop's the police organization that they all belong to. Um, then uh, Fitzroy shows up. Shazow! Yep, just steps through this uh, just brilliant pink uh, teleport hole. Anyway, 
tells him all this stuff, uh, basically tells Xavier, like, read my mind to see if I'm wrong. And Xavier does. He sees visions of the, like, history of the X-Men and the Sentinels invasion and all this stuff that sets up Bishop's future and kind of who Bishop and his compatriots are inside of this. And I think you brought up the point early on that I think I had a question about is being that the whole issue is essentially from Trevor Fitzroy's perspective, never once was I like, is Trevor Fitzroy, like, he is he the bad guy here? He doesn't seem like the bad guy. Like, everything that he <laughs> says is true. And Bishop is just this mutant cop who, you know, enforces his own kind against their own interests. And all this time I'm reading this being like, is Bishop really the bad guy? Like, I know this is, and you know, Fitzroy being someone who belongs to the upstarts, something I had forgotten at that moment. But okay, yeah, no, he's not a great guy by any means. But in this issue alone, it's like, I, I do I need to get like Trevor Fitzroy was right t-shirts now or something? We, we don't get a lot of context for his history here. We see him escaping yeah. prison, killing a cop and passing through a portal, then killing a man in an alley and now manipulating Xavier. So I do think he's the villain, but I can totally see the other side. There's a great moment before Xavier reads his mind where he's like, how do I know you're not the Shadow King? And he's like, read my <laughs> mind, you'll see. Yeah, like a, yeah, yeah. This, uh, this, these panels, uh, we're going to get to this on the next page, but these panels sure. that show what happens to uh, between Xavier's time and the future mm -hmm. are really compelling. But Fritzroy's clearly telling a particular version of events, right, about this dark future he comes from. Yeah. And it also makes me wonder, like, Fitzroy's state of mind. Is he convinced these things are right? Is he mentally strong enough to hide the aspects of his memories that Professor Xavier could see in order to know that he's manipulating events? I don't know. Maybe it was an interesting kind of point of view question. It, let me read this part. This is where he Xavier's in his mind. He says... The groups of mutants who will adopt your dream of peaceful coexistence with humans, a dream that will be grossly undermined by the actions of a sinister few, a dream of hope tragically shattered, or sh excuse me, shadowed by a nightmare of fear, hatred, and genocide. And we see an image of the Sentinels here. Yet despite the aftermath of a genetic World War III, the incarceration, the demoralization, the branding, your dream will live on, albeit twisted, as that fascist mutant police force, the XSE. Obsessively driven by your example, they'll strive to maintain the fragile peace with the human soldiers too often by the most draconian means. And this is where I get it, Philip, because he's not telling anything incorrect here. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, and, and of which Bishop is one of their their lead people. So um, after talking to Xavier and Xavier's like, well, of course, obviously this uh, shirtless man with green hair is telling the truth. <laughs> Um, cause if I, if, if it crosses through my mind, it must be the truth because I am Charles Xavier. He calls, uh, FBI special agent, Fred Duncan. Do we know Fred Duncan from anywhere, Chad? Yes. Okay, good. Cause I'm like, I know we do, but you, you know, this period, uh, so much better than I ever. Uh, please, please reference my Patreon episode, which is out on the main show about Fred Duncan with Mr. Sam Bartell. It's an hour and a half long history of this character who first appears in X-Men number two. Uh, okay. He's a character right from the beginning. He's the X-Men's FBI human ally who has a weird history with the team. So yeah, go check that out if you'd like more on this guy. Perfect. Uh, then we cut to Bishop running through the woods somewhere, real creepy swamp. I don't know. It's uh, upstate New York. Uh, Xavier appears with a squadron of FBI agents who start off by shooting bullets and then at some point switch to magical tasers or something. It doesn't logically makes sense like most of this issue um so they you know xavier asks them to stop don't kill this person uh xavier goes forward to talk to to bishop bishop kind of explains his history uh they talk about gene gray kind of their connection between their two worlds 
Um, and I wanna, let me let me slow this yeah. down for just a second. Xavier in this moment with Bishop uh, says, "In your world, Bishop, is there peace between the species?" And Bishop says, "No, sir. There's only war. But that's because somehow, someday, someone is going to betray you and your family of X Men." So again, we're we're referencing back to Onslaught, which was the story of this era in the '90s. Uh, this was Bishop's whole thing, right? That he becomes much more later, but we're referencing back to that space again. Yeah, yeah. So they talk about their connection to Jean Grey, uh, and then Fitzroy shows up because um, at this point Fitzroy is kind of on the side of Xavier and the FBI agents. Uh, Bishop runs forward to attack Fitzroy, and that's when Fred Duncan's like, "Well, enough waiting around. Just shoot that person." Uh, and they, but then they switch their guns to tasers for some reason. But I mean, I guess that's non-lethal, so that's that's a step in the right direction. But of course, with energy beams, it powers up Bishop so powerful that he allows himself to get arrested and then marched away. I don't understand. Yeah, at one moment he's like, now I'm all powered up, I'll get you. And then you see him being like escorted away in a police wagon. You're like, wait, what happened here? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) And then, you know, you got a great uh, panel of Fitzroy smiling Joker-esque off to the side as Bishop is carted away. And then, you know, Fred talking to Xavier, you know, about the the reality of this and and Xavier wink wink uh, to us says no I'll never form a team of X Men of you know, essentially of mutants to fight against uh, I'm not an outlaw uh, we the we end the issue on it says the following day however this compound looks very similar to the compound in the future from the beginning so I thought it was the fe- there was a lot of little things in there and I don't want to necessarily like you know critique into the negative but there were lots of little things in this issue that like just didn't work as far as like wait like um, what's his face dying in the alleyway, the bartender, uh, Harry, and then Bishop getting blamed for it. That entire interaction for most of the issue, I could not figure out for the life of me. And it took multiple readings to find like, oh, there's a body hidden in that corner that we never referenced for 10 more pages. That's an important thing, but it's framed in such a way and told in such a way. I didn't notice it and couldn't figure it out for quite a while. So this This is a issue. This issue was likely being produced very quickly. Very quickly, right? (laughs) We we, were all in comics and it's it's insane the pace sometimes, but there were, and you know, again, some of the creators, uh, Ben said this is the second issue of Marvel and this is early on in Ariel's tenure. There's, There's things you can be like, oh yeah, we're early on and have yet to maybe finesse some of these things either. But he ends up in this place, which we're to believe is in the present time, even though it looks like his future. And then it's just Bishop in a cell yelling, he's not the traitor. And so it doesn't really seem like anything changed in X-Men history. I don't understand the what if of this issue. It's like, what if Bishop came back? Oh, nothing nothing changes. All right, we're good. Yeah, we um, needed like one more page that said, here's what happened next. Fitzroy yeah, yeah, yeah. changed Xavier's mind. Bishop's in prison. Now here's what happened. Yeah, like, I here's honestly all these, yeah. thought it was missing a page. Like I was like, <laughs> how is this the ending? <laughs> yeah, it feels rushed. One of the funny things about Xavier here, uh, we now know the Moira retcon. This man will believe anything if you just let him read your thoughts a little bit. You're like, here's this dark future. Do what I say. So he did this with Fitzroy, and now he like he's. We learn this thing about Moira later. Uh, this man's very gullible if he thinks he's read your mind and knows exactly what he's looking into. But don't worry, he'll alter and erase your memories constantly. <laughs> 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 I, I, will, I believe on the on the last page also there's a coloring error which uh, emphasizes uh, Bishop's eyes uh, going wide wide open and actually looking at the drawing I believe they were supposed to be closed oh yeah yeah 
that's that's entirely fair uh i got it as like he's in this like energy stasis uh and maybe it was an effect of that this uh this issue has its flaws it does its job in that it's exploring this story but it spends a lot of time on a few things uh and and not enough time on the things we need it's ultimately kind of an unsatisfactory read and i i feel like i could say that and still be uh, very much in love with the creators who put it together because sometimes yeah. they get rushed and put out. Uh, yeah. But we did get to introduce Bishop to Grey Malkin Lane, which is my favorite part besides <laughs> uh, getting to know the three of you. Uh, do you have final thoughts But as we wrap up on what it was like to uh, to visit this uh, era of uh, a bizarre X-Men timeline that we will never see again? <laughs> I mean, I think... Uh... One of the questions I, I might even pose this to you, Chad, before I give any final thoughts is with a lot of these flashback ones, we did the Generation X uh, one, which was real fun. Um, across the board, stylistically, are they trying to mimic 60s comics? Because like the, the tone and dialogue feels like Ben is intentionally trying to write like that, whereas the in Generation X one was very, very modern. So I don't know. Yeah, in Gen X, we saw Chris Bacalow try to mimic a cover from the early yep. 60s books. We see some artists that are trying to emulate early styles, but it's kind of across the board. Okay. Uh, yeah, was, was... The, the rule was pre-Fantastic Four one. Okay. Um, yeah, like I, it, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. I do like the portrayal of Trevor Fitzroy in this issue a lot. Uh, his flamboyance is fantastic. The fact that he, even though he's like murdering people and all this stuff, he, he has, they do a really good job presenting his point of view in a way that I'm like, oh yeah, maybe he's not like the worst guy here. Maybe Bishop's actually not great. So I thought that was an interesting exploration. Um, and then some of Ariel's work here is really, really cool to see just where it's at at this time, where you can see some of his influences are early on, as often you are with artists early on in their career. And then it's fun to see how those all go into the blender that eventually becomes his very distinct approach. There's something comical about no matter what timeline they come back in, Malcolm and Randall just die right away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's awful, yeah. but also comical. And Bishop's future has a lot of attention. There's a whole series called Bishop uh, that references this. There's a long run in X-Factor with Shard. There's uh, the Peter David X-Factor. There's the Xavier Security Enforcer series. Uh, there's a lot of different versions of this history that we see. So it's influential to this timeline in a way that most of the the worlds, our futures are not. Uh, Zach, do you have any final thoughts on this issue? Uh, mostly just it was fun to read it from a, being a fan of Ariel's work and seeing the, the early, early stuff. And like the, the page that um, we mentioned earlier with like the six panels at the bottom and the, and the wide at the, at the top and just the the storytelling with all the silhouettes there i just thought it was awesome mm -hmm. i i love seeing that sort of stuff because like i don't know you know as a writer you are always thinking about how you're getting better but it's like not always as easy to perceive it but when you're looking at an artist and how they evolve over over time it's so much fun for me because it's just like i don't know it it, it shows you that progression isn't linear and it sort of is this interesting thing where it's like an issue that has some rough patches also has these moments of brilliance in it already. And you can kind of see the Ariel that we all know and love in some of these pages here. So it's, yeah, it was really fascinating from that perspective. Uh, there's a, sometimes the idea is better than the execution, right? Uh, yeah. Jean working in like, here's Jean in the future that Bishop remembers, but now here she is as a child. It's almost working in Fred Duncan was almost supplementary. We needed more, 
we needed more uh, a perspective from Bishop. We needed to know more why this story mattered for him. I think that's the thing that's missing most for me. Uh, Balam, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, uh, taking up on Zach's commentary, I, I well, actually, I was looking on the on the layout of the pages, so made me understand uh, this type of um, like in music, uh, comics also have tendencies and and side guys so yeah pretty much it was this was uh earlier before all the characters were stepping out of the panels and it's a really elegant way of of uh displaying a page and how to build it there's a lot of a uh, play with with uh silhouettes and uh simplifying the characters and the backgrounds for example the the trees on the on the swamp scene are quite lovely they are like yeah. like this really elegant branching and branches uh, so yeah the artistic is artistically it's a really interesting book for me and i also made this sadly the 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 listeners are not gonna look it but i made my my own bishop oh, oh my gosh you gotta post it it's beautiful <laughs> that's gorgeous <laughs> No, it's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> really, really well done. Uh, Balam Drew Bishop yeah. while we were while we were recording. That's so good. Uh, I am not an art crit critic. There's something missing for the inks in this issue for me as well. This will be my final comment. The uh, There's a few facial expressions that come across really odd in this book. And you almost wonder if it was rushed or if the inker, sometimes an inker and a penciler just don't quite mesh well together. Uh, there's yeah. a there, there's a there's a couple of facial expressions across this as you read that you're just like oof, <laughs> it's uh it's a little rough. Uh, but I'm a huge fan of everyone who put this book out. Uh, it's been a genuine delight, Philip, to see you again, and Zach and Balam to get to know you both. Thank you for the gift of your time and talents today. We're gonna put this episode out on July 24th. As we are wrapping up, where can people find each of you online? And is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, Balam, do you want to go first? Yeah, uh, actually, thank you for having me, and thanks to the listeners. I hope we have uh, we had a, uh, some fun uh, reading through some um, time displacement and time like um, how how do I say it? Like this this timelines are quite interesting, and and X Men are just the place to to develop these stories. So yeah, it was a lot of fun for me. Thank you so much for, for again for having me and for the time spent here with you. I had a lot of fun and a pleasure to meet you guys. Uh, where can people find you online, Balam? Well, I have uh, my Instagram, which is Enid um, Low Dash Balam, uh, or uh, you can find so me in in, uh, uh, in English uh, Enid underscore Balam. In it underscore Balam. Yeah. And it, it's the same for Twitter. Fantastic. And anything you want to plug? Uh any anything you want to announce or or what where can people look to find your work? Yeah, well, just a reminder that uh, I do not engage in, in hate speak or that type of thing. So if you write something awful to me, I would rather pass on it and try to to send you a, a a beautiful image. So yeah, <laughs> let's go. That's a good way to do it. And check out uh, Balam's work in uh, New Mutants Lethal Legion. The fifth issue should be coming out in July. It's wonderful. Yeah. I can't wait to read it uh, front to back. Uh, thank, thank you, you for thank your you support. For coming on. Oh, I, I really love the book, man. Uh, Philip. Yeah, you can find me. Twitter, if I'm still there, is under is at Philip CV. Uh, Blue Sky, if you can get in, I'm at Philip CV. And then Instagram is Philip CV Comic Art. Um, but yeah, as on July 24th, you can find me at San Diego Comic-Con. I'll be wandering around somewhere. By that day of the convention, I'll be rather glassy-eyed and tired, but uh, 
I'm excited to do that show. Yeah, and then my work at this point will still be in Edge of Venomverse, which is an uh, Infinity series on Marvel Unlimited. If you are subscribed to the app, you can read it for free. If you're not, I don't know why you sh- there's there's not any great excuses other than wanting you know the month the yearly fee for Marvel Unlimited, but it's an incredible. Uh, Service. There we go. My words are a little hard today. It's a good incredible. investment. <laughs> yeah. It's an incredible service, uh, and it allows so many cool things in addition to just the exclusive comics there. So much past uh, scanned issues of comics for decades and decades worth of stuff. I, I enjoyed the hell out of that app. And Philip is uh, two L's and CV is S-E-V-Y. So yes, if everybody indeed. would like to find and follow. And, and then lastly, Zach. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. This was a sincere pleasure. And and like, I I love this kind of stuff. Like, I love this era of X-Men as well. So it's so much fun to break this down with you guys. Um, you can find me online at Zach B.E. Thompson, both on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, when this comes out in about a week, I will have a new book launching at Mad Cave Studios called uh, Project Rise, which is like a Indiana Jones pulp adventure uh, book with uh, Jeff McComsky. It is a it is such a wonderful pleasure to meet these people that I'm such a big fan of. You guys are all just so talented. This has been a genuine joy, and thank you for being such incredible allies uh, for the queer community as you are producing these incredible uh, works. It's a it's a weird time to be uh, LGBTQ in America, so reading these books that have such strong and wonderful support is a, is a really big deal. Uh, lastly, uh, you can uh, find me. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can find me Gray Malkin P P like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Uh, We've got big stuff coming up on the show. In July and August, we're going to be wrapping up our reviews of The Hidden Years. September, we'll tackle the last two flashbacks, uh, which is X-Force and Wolverine. And then in October, we're doing a Magneto tribute month before we go back into the early 70s content uh, in November. So big plans. I'm planning far ahead. And there's so many great professionals and great things happening on the show. The next episode coming out immediately after this one will be the trial, uh, the joint trial of Danger and Quasimodo. Sounds real weird, but I promise you it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, After that, we're doing a review of the book X-Men Season 1 with the really fun combination of Chris Hassan, Chris Sotomayor, and Jordan White. So make sure to check us out. On the Patreon channel, we will just have released the Summers Family episode referenced with Philip. And right after that, we have an episode on Kimura, uh, the X-2-3 villainous uh, with the uh, writer Erica Schultz, who is just lovely. Uh, Thank you, everybody. Uh, We will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grim Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grim Malkin Lane.